prayers me, please. Lord, what a beautiful song we just sang, and I pray that this song, the words of the song, had rang true, and it continues to ring true in our hearts, that nothing we desire compares with you. Lord, you are more costly and more precious than anything that this world can offer. So, Lord, I pray that it does ring true in our lives, that we are not deceiving ourselves and just singing these words just because they're words on a screen or words that uh, people are leading us in. But, Lord, these things are true in our lives. And if not, Lord, I pray that you would make them true in our lives. And so now, Lord, I pray as we open up your word, I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds that we may behold wondrous things in your Torah today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, open your Bibles, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And uh, it's on page 168 in your pew Bible, in case you need that. And as you do, I want you to keep two phrases in mind. One phrase is cosmic geography. And the other phrase is sacred space, cosmic geography, sacred space, because we're going to talk about these things today, pretty much in depth. Now, the Lord told us as his people that we are to love him with our minds. And so given what we're going to talk about today in Deuteronomy chapter seven, it is imperative that we love him today with our minds. We're going to be talking about a lot of things. We're going to give a lot of content here in this passage. You know, every week I give you a lot of content. <laughs> so, but this week even more so. As I mentioned last week, we're going to talk about something very difficult today for us to hear. We call it genocide. And not only the act of genocide in general, but also the one who commanded Israel to commit it. Yahweh himself. He's the one that told his people to commit genocide. We saw last week how Yahweh has a heart of love. He has set his affection on his people. And one would think that the last thing in the Lord's heart or the last thing on his mind would be for him to tell his people to kill every man, every woman, every kid in a nation whom Yahweh himself called out for destruction. It's pretty difficult to think about. But it was not just one nation that he called out. He called out seven nations. So what's up with this? Why in the world would Yahweh want every person in seven nations to die, regardless of age, sex, disability, social economic status, what have you? We're going to deal with this issue called genocide today head on. Now, I have a hunch that at least some of you would rather we not deal with this issue. But I have to. That means you have to. (laughs) See, our passage for today is the next passage in front of us. The Lord has tasked his pastors to teach and to preach the whole counsel of his word. I'm not allowed to skip over this, no matter how unpleasant it is. So we have to deal with it. And I'm convinced that there is a solution to what some see as an impossible situation. Reconciling the Lord's heart of love with the command he gave his people to destroy fellow imagers of God. As we deal with this difficult issue, though I have a goal for all of us, and that we as his people do not falsely accuse the Lord, to label him and therefore treat him as something and someone that he's not. 
See, when real evil, not inconvenience, comes and kicks down the door of our lives, it has a way of presenting a challenge to change the way that we see the Lord. I can tell you all kinds of stories about this, and maybe you can too. In that moment, though, we have a choice. Are we going to continue being loyal to the Lord in those times? Or do we find another object into which we place our faith? So as we deal with genocide, divinely commanded, let's get ready to wrestle. This is not for the faint of heart or spirit. I want you to come with me as I attempt to help us to understand why genocide would even be in his word in the first place. So we're not going to jump into the passage quite yet. I've got a lot, of, a lot of setting up for us to do. And so you don't just hear my voice, but when it comes to reading the passage, Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 5, and 17 and 26, I've asked Brother James to read that for us. And my prayer is that we will walk away from this passage of Scripture better equipped to see the Lord in a little clearer light and to help others to do the same. See, we can trust the Lord and His Word and even offer very good answers to very difficult questions and issues when His Word and the realities of life intersect. So to set things up, let's go to what I believe is right at the heart of the issue, and that is God's goodness and evil. Now, it's one thing to understand God and His goodness on one hand and the existence of evil on the other. But things get a little bit more complicated when God, who possesses a faithful heart of love, turns right around and commands his people, whom he loves, to do something unspeakably evil. But many, if not most, tend to put this reality off to the side. Some people think, well, it's just too confusing, so I'm not going to deal with it. Or perhaps in our bravery, we might take a stab at this. And we try to wrestle with it for a while, only to file it under the, uh, I don't know all about that category. Or some never even reconcile these things, just kind of letting them stay side by side, not even giving an answer, and perhaps even secretly hoping no one asks the question, and they will never ask the question either, ever. But there are many precious souls who have tried and failed to deal with the reality of our good God and the existence of evil, quote-unquote, living in the same space. They conclude that they just can't live in the tension. And then something evil happens to them, and they experience a crisis of faith, and then they decide that the Lord is not worth following. And it doesn't help matters when you've got outspoken atheists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris who loudly and proudly proclaim their radical atheism, they offer answers that many people like. It seems to make sense to them. And here's the atheist's typical explanation for things like this. If God exists, and he is all good and loving, he should do something about evil. And for them, there's only two possible answers as to why God has not done away with evil. First, God merely acknowledges evil. He knows it's around, but he chooses not to do anything with it. And in their minds, that makes him cruel and not worth following. Second, God does see evil. He wants to do something about it, but he is unable to do so. That makes him less than all-powerful. And again, not worthy of following. But both ideas are the outcome 
of a false accusation of the Lord, labeling him something that he is not. So here's perhaps we might even need to do a little bit of fine-tuning in our lives for those of us who really love the Lord. See, real evil does exist, true? And Yahweh really is good, right? However, there is far more to Yahweh than his goodness, as good as that is. See, he is also perfect. He is also love. He is also angry at sin and sinners. He is also all-knowing and never has to learn anything. He is also all-powerful. Nothing is too hard for him. And all of this has a bearing on his attitude toward evil in this world. So when we think about God and his attributes, imagine him, if you will, like this as the finest diamond that there is. Big enough, or maybe even small enough, to hold into our hands. Imagine further that we can see individual facets on this diamond with a brilliant light shining upon it. Got the picture? As we look at him, this diamond, we see a few facets, a few attributes of God head on. But if we move the diamond only a little, we'll see other facets, many other facets. And the trick is for us to try to see every attribute of God in perfect balance with every other attribute, like the fact that he possesses a faithful heart of love and at the same time commands his people that he does love to perform genocide on seven nations. Is your mind blown yet? Now let's take another step and briefly remind ourselves that this issue of God's love and the genocidal command he gave his people are both recorded in the same book with all of its statements which have been inspired by the all-knowing and all-wise God. We're not allowed to pick and choose which parts of the scriptures that we like and we consider are valuable and inspired. Also, we're not allowed to choose which parts that we deem as uninspired and not valuable, and and just throw those things away with the rest of the myths of religion. So let's not minimize things here. Let's not sweep this under some kind of a theological rug. God's command to his people to commit genocide is every bit his idea, as is his love for us in John 3.16. It's the same level. And now with a bit of orientation, Let's not leave things in an ivory tower somewhere. Let's bring a practical. Yahweh really did command his people to kill the residents of every man, woman, and kid in seven nations. Not just once in Deuteronomy, but several times he mentioned this. And we'll talk about these several times later. But it's very difficult, isn't it, for anyone to take this command of Yahweh seriously and at least not be tempted to have his or her heart rise up in judgment of God. You can imagine. Now, that's not fair, God. What did little kids do to deserve death? God, don't you think you're just being a little bit over the top here? The sad reality is, in our fallen world, situations and people are filled with things that are unfair or unjust or even unspeakably evil. I'm confident that we all have stories that we can add to this. But let me give you a personal one. My niece, Heather, gave birth to a daughter. Her name is Audra. 
about 15 years ago. Whole lot of birth defects. And when she was born, practically every one of her organs on the inside in different places. And if memory serves me correctly, she was born with at least one organ outside of her body. Audra lived 18 months. It was just long enough for her mother, single parent, to bond fully with Audra. Now, I mentioned last week, we need to have a deeper understanding of the Lord, lest we falsely accuse him. For when our bewilderment or our complaints turn into false accusations of the Lord, what happens to our love for him? It tends to evaporate. And likewise, our desire to show our love to him through obedience tends to leave us. And exclusive loyalty to him then begins to fade away. For how can we be loyal to someone, to the Lord, that we will not obey? How can we properly obey him when we do not love him? And how can we love the Lord when we pin a false label on him? Now, a surefire way to falsely accuse the Lord regarding what he told his people to do in our passage for today, genocide, is to read this passage with the wrong set of lenses. In other words, to read it out of context. Now, anybody who deeply desires to understand and apply God's word to their lives has this at the center of it all. Context is king. Without the proper context, we can make the Bible say whatever we want. Isn't that true? And there are some who can prove atheism from the Bible by taking words out of context. As Bible students, we need to understand that there is more to the context than merely the words surrounding the verses that we are reading and studying. We must also take into account something that many people do not do, and that is taking into account the worldview of the Scripture writers. Now, that takes time, it takes patience, and maybe some additional resources. But if we neglect the worldview of those who were inspired to write Holy Scripture, then we will personally misunderstand and misapply His Word, often to our own hurt. Now, that's especially true when we talk about our passage for today and the issue of genocide. You ever wonder how people in Moses' day thought about spiritual things? Probably not, because we think about just how we apply it, right? How we think about spiritual things. And not just Israel, and not just Moses, but what about all the other nations around them? How do they think about spiritual things? In a word, profoundly different than the way we think. Isn't that true? But Moses did not preach these inspired sermons recorded in Deuteronomy in a vacuum. He was using concepts that the people were familiar with, not just Israel, but everybody around them. See, Moses did not introduce weird ideas to his people. Now, we must understand the worldview of Moses and Israel, again, lest we falsely accuse the Lord. See, if we miss this, we will miss the point of what Yahweh, through Moses, is telling his people to do. Now, I know I've thrown a lot at you guys. I I see some people glazing over already. But please stay with me. It will make sense, I promise. Now, let me give you a couple more things here. A couple of essential ideas as the background 
to understand the world, to figure out why God told his people to commit genocide. Now, I mentioned them earlier. The first is what's called cosmic geography. Cosmic geography. And the second is sacred space. Cosmic geography involves two things. First, this is going to sound weird to some of you. Scripture tells us that there are spiritual beings in the unseen world referred to as gods, small g. Now, of course, there is no one like Yahweh. No one. He alone is God, capital G. He alone is the creator. He alone controls the universe. But the pagans worship real spiritual beings who are not Yahweh. In our English Bibles, we see these real beings in places everywhere we look, and they are called gods. And all of them are far inferior to Yahweh. Why is that? Because they're creatures. They're creatures. They're not on par with Yahweh. But again, the scripture writers label them as gods. Getting it? Understanding it? Is it too weird? I hope not. Let me say again, Yahweh is the creator. All else is creation. And all else is created to worship Yahweh. Let me give you just one of many, many examples where Scripture talks about this. Psalm 97.7 says this, inspired statement. Worship Him, Yahweh, all you gods. All you gods, is what it says. In other words, when Scripture refers to spiritual beings as gods, who obviously are not Yahweh in that context, we can take it to the bank that they are real entities. They're real. Otherwise, would it not be silly Yahweh to tell his people in the very first commandment he gave to them to have no other gods before me if the gods are not real? It'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? A little logic ought to tell us that Yahweh thought the gods were real. And I think we would benefit if we thought the same thing as well. Yahweh told his people not to pledge allegiance to them. Yahweh alone is to be Israel's God, capital G. No little g rivals will do. Make sense? There's a second thing we must understand about this idea called cosmic geography. Everybody knew back in the day, whether you were a pagan, whether you were a member of Israel, didn't matter. The gods and Yahweh claimed to own real estate on this planet. Actual plots of ground, real estate on the earth. In other words, Yahweh was and is a landowner. He referred to his real estate as the promised land. We see it over and over again, don't we? This land is his, and he gave it to his people. Now, Yahweh calls his piece of real estate his inheritance. His people as well, but the land as well. And he gave it to Israel to make good on the promise he made to Abraham and his descendants. And he could give that land to Abraham. Why? Because he owned it. But the gods also had plots of ground that they claimed as well. And who do you think gave these gods, small g, their plots of ground? Well, let's find out. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. If you want to turn there, fine. If not, that's okay. When the Most High, and who is that? It's Yahweh. 
gave to the nations their inheritance, land. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders, obviously land, of the people according to the number of the sons of God. When we get this passage later on down the line, we'll go and talk in a whole lot more detail. But for now, it's, it's for us to know that these gods, little g, and Yahweh claimed real estate on this planet. That's cosmic geography. The land the Lord was going to bring Israel into was his land. Again, I've got a little bit more to say about cosmic geography after Brother James reads our passage. But before he does, let me introduce you to the other idea that I've mentioned. It's called sacred space. It is as it sounds. Again, everybody thought this way about the gods they worshipped. And Israel thought this way about Yahweh as well. Each one considered their land that was apportioned to them, that Yahweh considered his own, as his own, their own exclusive land, their plot. Okay, so we've got all these little geographical things according to the gods, and obviously Yahweh has got his land too. So now, taking a step back, all right, come up for air a little bit. We've got to balance this idea with the truth of Scripture in other passages as well, like Psalm 24.1. And Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He owns it all. However, as we saw, he gave the gods, small g, real estate too. And Yahweh took for himself what he called the promised land. And Yahweh used his sacred space in two ways. Again, the first was to fulfill a promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 15. To sum up, the Lord predicted to Abraham that his descendants were going to be enslaved for 400 years. He would bring them out of the land of slavery and bring them into the land of promise. And then he tells this to Abraham. The iniquity, sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. As we're going to see in a moment, the Amorites were one of those seven nations that Moses listed were totally wicked. And God gave them 400 years to repent. Don't you marvel at the patience of the Lord? It is clear that the Amorites did not repent. And so the Lord was going to raise up his people to be instruments of judgment to punish the Amorites who were living in Yahweh's land. Again, so let's catch our breath for a moment. I'm not asking whether cosmic geography and sacred space make sense to us because it probably doesn't make any sense to us. But I am letting you know this is how everybody back in the day thought of things, spiritual things. We need to accept this because if we don't accept it, we'll miss the point. We won't understand. So without further ado, let's hear our passage today read Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 5 and 17 to 26. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them completely to destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, 
giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the people of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into a great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand and you shall make their name perish from under the heavens. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is, is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it will be. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. I want to hit a couple highlights here in the passage before I bring things home for a very practical couple of applications. And I will tell you up front, though, that God does not command his people today to destroy nations in his name. Who does that? The Orthodox Muslims do. And they do not get their marching orders from Yahweh. I'll just kind of leave that right there. So let's revisit cosmic geography and sacred space because they both flow together. Now, in verses 1 to 3, we have Yahweh's genocidal command. But in 4 and 5, he gives the reason for the command. The pagans, in their worshiping other gods on Yahweh's land, will turn Yahweh's people away from their holy, exclusive relationship to him and his land. In other words, they will commit spiritual adultery. And God says that is something that he does not deal with. He can't handle. He won't tolerate. In the words of one author, the seven nations were wicked squatters on Yahweh's land. They were to be gotten rid of. Now, we can envision this by way of an analogy. They were like a cancer threatening to attack the body of his people, of Israel. Now, we all know how cancer operates, true? All the cells in the body are to be removed. And as we know, if even one cell remains, the cancer can come back with a vengeance. That's why we have radiation and chemo and all that stuff in conjunction with this. Spiritually speaking, the seven nations to include all people, altars, pillars, ashram poles, were cancers threatening to attack Yahweh's people. 
And God says, get rid of it all, every last bit of it. But it's not as though as God was aloof and says, okay, you go do it on your own. He says, I'm going to be with you in doing this. He will give the nations over to his people, but they will still need to wield the sword. In verses 17 and 26, Yahweh then lays out how he will be involved with them. He's going to assist them to perform cancer surgery. First of all, he tells them not to fear his enemies. See, he reminds them of what he did to deliver them from 10 of the Egyptian gods. In verse 20, the Lord tells them he will even send hornets to attack them. In other words, Yahweh will supply his warriors, quote, natural help as well to defeat the enemies. Yahweh is also in control of the pace of the war. In verse 22, he says to them, basically, now guys, settle in for the long haul, a long campaign, because if you kill the nations too quickly, the animals will become too numerous for you. So there's a pace with this. In addition, the Lord tells Israel he will fight for them, employing psyops, psychological operations against the enemy. He will introduce confusion into their minds so they won't know which end is up. And if you're overwhelmed with brain fog in war, it's going to be awful difficult for you to even survive, let alone kill the enemy. And finally, the Lord warns his warriors against taking for themselves value for the campaign. The carved images were crafted with silver, gold, shiny objects. And if they weren't careful, they were going to be lured away from exclusive relationship with Yahweh. They were to get rid of every trace, to lock every door, so to speak, that might lead them away from their exclusive relationship to Yahweh. And even though Yahweh emphasized in this chapter that Israel was his holy, treasured possession, and even though the Lord promised to give them his plot of geography, Yahweh was and is holy, first and foremost. The land of promise was still his sacred space. Israel, or God, was raising up an army to get rid of the wicked Amorites and six other nations because of their evil. In essence, the Lord warned his own people, and if you persist in living evil in my land, you're going to be expelled as well. And so here's the bottom line as to why the Lord commanded his people to perform genocide on seven nations. They were spiritual squatters on Yahweh's land. In keeping with the Lord's declaration of his exclusive, undying relationship he has with his people, there could be no rivals, no gods of the nations. And this was Yahweh's land. Israel was Yahweh's holy people. Yahweh and Israel were to have an exclusive relationship with each other. And the seven nations proved to be a powerful, malignant cancer. All traces of the spiritual cancer were to be removed. And so now, how can we apply this to ourselves? 21st century Christianity here and in other places. I'll give you two applications. First and foremost, far and away, we do not live on Yahweh's real estate, do we? Where do we live? Mechanicsville. We don't live in what we call Palestine. Therefore, we cannot carry out this command even if we wanted to. But the application is much more grand and glorious than that. See, we don't engage in physical warfare 
to achieve spiritual ends today, and we haven't for 2,000 years. Now, there have been other branches of the church that have tried to do that, think crusades. But things drastically changed between Moses' day and when Jesus came on the scene. See, the day the Lord Jesus gave his disciples the command to make disciples of all nations was the day that the parameters were all changed. See, cosmic geography is no longer physically limited to the land of promise. And now, every time someone comes into the kingdom of God, into the real, uh, but albeit spiritual kingdom, Yahweh's cosmic geography expands. And that means spiritual real estate of the gods, small g, what does that do? Shrinks. See, it's a binary thing here. There's no fluidity here. It's binary. It's a zero-sum game. We gain, they lose. We lose, they gain. That's the way it works. Who has not heard of a guy named Gary Paxton? Think the song Monster Mash. Remember that song? He produced that song. In the early 1970s, Gary Paxton became Brother Gary because he gave his heart to Jesus. At the same church that Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith attended, if you know those guys. It's kind of amazing. But in his wacky but hard-hitting way, and some people have actually called Gary Paxton Christian music's arch eccentric, there is no doubt about where he stood with the Lord, and indeed he went home to be with the Lord in 2016. Now, one of his albums is called Terminally Weird but Godly Right. I kind of like the title. I even had the vinyl. If you remember vinyl back then. And one of the songs in the campaign is called, or the album is called, Take Your Turf for Jesus. And here's part of the lyrics. You got to take your turf for Jesus and talk about him night and day. You got to take your turf for Jesus in a mighty, holy way. Because when you're taking your turf for Jesus, he's going to look down and say, well done, my daughters and sons. Well done. Kind of like that. Isn't that neat? The point is that the Lord's geography is no longer limited to what it was in the physical realm. See, when it's all said and done, though, everything is going to come under and it's going to look exactly the way he wants it. Psalm 24, 1 again says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The second application has to do with sacred space. Exclusive relationship between the Lord and us, both corporately and individually. Like the exclusive relationship between Yahweh and Israel, so is between Christ and the church. Exclusive relationship. As Israel is holy, separated unto Yahweh alone, so as Christians we are separated unto Christ alone. He is the bridegroom. We are his bride. The Jewish marriage custom is appropriate at this point, significant. See, when a couple was to be married, Several things happened. First was the haggling over the bride price. You know, they had to go do that. And once that was settled, then the couple was announced as betrothed. Now, they couldn't consummate the marriage. They weren't married yet, but legally they were. Now, the responsibility of the groom, the husband, was to go away and to prepare a place for his bride and eventual children that would be produced in their marriage. And the responsibility of the bride, the wife, was to make herself ready to keep herself pure and spotless until the groom comes to take her away 
to the place he prepared. And then they entered into an exclusive lifelong covenant. Now with this in mind, let's listen in on a conversation the Lord Jesus had with his men the night before he was crucified. And when he was crucified, he was, as it were, paying the bride price, if you will, for their sin. John 14, 2 and 3 says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take it to myself. That where I am, there you will be also. See, in a sense, Jesus as the bridegroom was making a proposal to his people, his disciples as his bride. He would go away and prepare a place. His bride was to make herself ready for his return. And the Lord was able to make his proposal because he paid the bride price. His blood was that price. Sacred space all over the place here. Do you get it? Think exclusive relationship. Think purity regarding all that the bride is. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, talked about this very thing in 1 John 3, 1 to 3. If you want to turn there, fine. You don't have to. And he says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We as his people pledge to be loyal to him. And we demonstrate our loyalty by the way that we live. In short, we live in the Lord's sacred space. Our lives are to reflect Yahweh's vision for his people. One author puts it like this. Sin belongs out there in the realm of darkness. It does not belong in here among God's people. And what this means for us in the warfare is that we kill sin wherever we find it in ourselves, as well as helping our brothers and sisters in Christ to do the same. That's why we come together. And when it comes to spiritual warfare, we offer no quarter with sin. I may have shared this before, but it bears repeating because it was a powerful moment a number of years ago when I was a chaplain. I had just arrived at Interlake Air Base, Turkey, 2000, for my three-month deployment. For the first several days of my deployment, I was receiving instruction and things like that, a handoff from the chaplain who was there. And so we were kind of getting the lay of the land here because I was living in Tent City, as he was. And it was during those days I witnessed an encounter the chaplain had with a young Christian who had a struggle. Now, the airman believed that for him, smoking was a sin. Now, there are about as many different opinions about the morality of smoking as there are Christians, I'm sure. But for him, at this Christian, he believed that smoking was a sin against God. Now, during this encounter, the chaplain asked him how he handled it. And even though he wanted to quit, he kind of hemmed and hawed about it, you know. And the chaplain asked him, do you see your smoking as an enemy? And the airman looked at him and said, no, I really don't. 
And then the chaplain gave what I believe to be the key in spiritual warfare, regardless of the battle the Christian is facing. And he said this, then you will never get the victory. See, unless you see your smoking as a mortal enemy, you will never get the victory. It will always defeat you. The point is clear, isn't it? When the Lord brings us to the place where we're convinced that X, Y, or Z is a sin against the Lord, from that point on, it is all-out spiritual warfare. No mercy with it. We don't play with it. We put it down every time the temptation rears its ugly head. We can do that, can't we? But it's not our power and our strength. Who lives inside of us? It's Holy Spirit does. It's done by His power. You know, it's been said that when temptation knocks on my door, I let Jesus answer it. Kind of like that. But the truth is, every time we yield to the Lord when the temptation comes our way, we will always get the victory. Do you believe that? It has to be that way. Why? Because the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives within us. Is there any sin that the Holy Spirit cannot conquer? Is there any sin? If He lives within us and we yield to Him, then what happens? We get the victory every single time. But our problem is not that we don't have the power. It's that we fail to fully yield to Him. Whenever we fully yield to Him, that's when we get the victory every single time. So let's treat the temptation to sin like it's our mortal enemy. No mercy. No quarter. Seek complete annihilation of that sin in your life and my life to the glory of God. Now again, are we going to be completely sin-free on this side of the life? No. But we can get closer and closer. But we have the power to overcome sin every time it rears its ugly head. And that's one of the points that we can see here in Deuteronomy 7. God says, do away with all of this sin. Do away with all of these nations. They're going to drive you away from me. Ours as part of the body of Christ is to get ready for his return because we are the bride of Christ as well. And my question is, how are you doing in this regard? Communicate with your bridegroom often. Listen for his words of truth and grace and love and out of gratitude that he has set his affections on us. May we live as though we are grateful. You live as though you're grateful for being a Christian. If you do, then you will do what he would ask you to do. May his warm affection for us be the incentive for us to have the same for him. And as we close this message, may we take to heart the tender words of our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, in John 15, 7 to 11. He says this to them and to us. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to me, my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 
abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Father, thank you for your word, this very difficult passage, as we had to try to wrestle with this and reconcile how your heart of love, actually, you told your people to go and kill others. Lord, this is so difficult for us to grasp. But Lord, thank you that you have allowed us to see some of these things. And, and Lord, this is life and death. We understand life and death, evil and good. You, Lord, are going to conquer. And you already have, Lord Jesus, conquered death through your death and resurrection. Help us, Lord, to live as though we believe it. Your Holy Spirit lives within us and that we never have to yield to sin ever again if we want to. So, Lord, give us the incentive because of your love for us to go to war, to go to battle against these things. Help us, Lord, to never excuse ourselves again and play the victim. But help us, Lord, to be the victor because you told us that we are more than conquerors through you who love us. And I thank you now, Lord, for this time that we can do a couple more activities of worship, that we can give. I pray that we would give with a heart that's overflowing, full of gratitude for what you've done for us. And then, Father, as we sing as well, help us to sing to you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, because you alone deserve it. In Jesus' name.